This episode of Standard Orbit is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 150,000 titles for iPhone, iPad, iPod, Android, Kindle, Windows Phone, plus Mac or PC. To get a free audiobook of your choice, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. Hey everyone, I'm Rod Roddenberry, and you're listening to Trek FM. Follow standard orbit, Mr. Chekhov, and take a seat. I said. You will obey. It is the word of Landru. Joy to you, friends. Welcome to Standard Orbit, Trek FM's dedicated show about the original Star Trek series. This is a show where we dive into the characters, concepts, cliches, and other things that don't start with C about the original series. My name is Drew, or Landrew. I'm the TOS editor for the network, and with me today is my co-host Mike from Commentary Track Stars. Hello. And we are once again joined by Mark Cushman, author of These Are the Voyages. Hi, guys. Thanks for coming back. We really appreciate it. Yeah. I appreciate it. It feels like I was just there. So we understand that you've got some uh, uh, book two is coming out soon, uh, uh, covering season two. We're we're excited. We're excited about that. We're hoping that you can give everybody a preview of some of the some of the surprises, just some of the surprises that that may or may not be in store for the readers. I would love to. Uh, you know, this was originally going to be one book, and I turned it into the publisher, and it was like seventeen hundred pages, and they 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 put me in a straitjacket and took me away and then they started reading it to try to find things to cut and they said you know this is good we can't cut any of this this is all interesting and they didn't even know star trek uh so um i they said well what are you going to do and and i said what are you going to do and they said we're going to release it in three books one for each season so here we go so book two is is coming up and uh it picks up where book one left off, obviously, and, and uh, looks at each episode, about 15 to 20 pages per episode, taking you through everything from the, the pitch to the writing of the script, the rewriting of the script, dealing with the network, the censors, budget problems, then filming, and what went right and what went wrong on the, on the production, and then uh, post-production, and trying to get those special effects made, and how much everything costs, and, and then... Uh, you know, what was shot where and when and all that kind of stuff. And, and then you get to see the ratings, which I licensed uh, for each uh, each season and for each episode. Uh, and these haven't been published ever. Uh, that's why so many people thought Star Trek was a failure in the ratings. And as we've learned from book one, it did pretty good on NBC. It was their top-rated Thursday night show. Uh, with some of the episodes, one one first season episode had a 47% audience share. 47% of the TVs in America were tuned in. And the NBC was trying to tell us that the show wasn't doing well. Well, one thing you're going to learn in book two is why NBC did that. Why they were basically not telling the truth and hiding the ratings and uh, and tried to cancel Star Trek after its first season and tried to cancel it after its second season. And and uh, it had nothing to do with the ratings. Uh, it had to do with their relationship with Gene Roddenberry, which was not good to begin with and was deteriorating rapidly with each season. And the relationship uh, Star Trek had with the studio, which was deteriorating. And you're going to see in book two, uh, if you found out in book one that Lucille Ball was responsible for Star Trek getting made 
she uh, put her studio in danger to get that show uh, on the air, and her board of directors were begging her not to do it, even even after NBC ordered the series. And uh, the uh, board of directors said, "Don't do this. You know, uh, NBC is not going to go bankrupt over this series. We will, because they're not paying us enough." to cover the cost of each episode. We're going to lose money with each episode, and we're not, we, our pockets aren't deep enough to survive this. And Mission Impossible, so they were also producing at that time. So it happens in book two. You're going to see Lucille Ball lose her studio and have to sell it to Paramount. So, it's a pretty so, emotional. Go ahead. Yeah. So the... I say it's a pretty emotional piece uh, to say. I can tell you now, but but it's not a spoiler alert because you'll see what she goes through and feel what she goes through in losing her studio, uh, so that she could bring on Star Trek. So the the board of directors ended up being right in a sense. Yeah, they were, they were, and and uh, see Lucy, uh, Desi Lu. If you know your Desilu history, and there's a you will if you read book one, um, uh, Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz started that studio because of the success of I Love Lucy, uh, and they owned I Love Lucy, uh, and nobody else ever had owned their own show, but they did, and so his philosophy, Desi Arnaz, his philosophy was to own shows, not just make them for other production companies and for studios and for networks or for networks, but that, that our studio needs to own these shows too so we can sell them into reruns and we can make money uh, off the repeats, which I Love Lucy had done. So after Desi was gone and Lucy was left alone running this studio, um, you know, her she didn't have any shows left except her own that the studio owned. The Untouchables was gone and all the other shows that Desi Arnaz got on the air. And so she uh, grabbed Star Trek and she grabbed Mission Impossible and sold one to CBS and Star Trek to NBC. And uh, the board of directors said, don't do this. The pilot went three times over budget. You know, it was supposed to cost uh, 200 and something thousand dollars and it cost 600 and something thousand, which would you know, be like six million today. And, uh, and they said, you know, if, if every episode is going to go over budget, it's gonna, you're going to lose your studio. And so, oh, no, I trust them. They'll, they'll be able to do this. Well, they weren't. There was only four episodes in the first season that came in on budget. The other of the 29 went over budget and uh, took more than six days to film. Some went over budget as, as much as double, like The City on the Edge of Forever. So by the time uh, it was in its second season, the, the studio went bankrupt and uh, had to be sold to Paramount. So it's a it's a sad thing for Lucy, but it was also a sad day for Star Trek because when Paramount came in, they were determined, we're not going to let you ruin us the way you ruined Desilu. Thank you, by the way, for ruining Desilu. We were able to buy them at a great price, but you're not going to do that to us. And so they cut Star Trek's budget substantially. They refused to let them go into overtime. At 6.20 at night, they'd start filming at 8 in the morning. Everybody had to be in at makeup at 6.30. Uh, Nimoy and Shatner did, and the others came in right after that. Uh, and they and so they'd stop shooting at 6:20. Uh, well, most during the first season, they'd go to 8 o'clock, 9 o'clock, 10 o'clock. I mean, these poor guys would be working. If you look at Nimoy and Shatner, they'd be there for 14, 15 hours a day, five days a week. 
and then go home and be learning their lines for the next day. It's exhausting work being on a TV series. Um, but in the second season, halfway through, they, they said, okay, that's not going to happen anymore. Uh, you know, we're going to come down, literally, somebody from the studio would come down at 6.20 and, and pull and shut off the electricity. Hmm. If they were in the middle of the scene, they would shut off the electricity. So that's wow. it. Wow. Yeah. Imagine working like that. I'll tell you so another terrible thing. Uh, during the second season, that started happening and continued through the third is NBC was so determined to get rid of the show and they had to pick it up for a second year because there was a big writing campaign, which was nothing like the big writing campaign when they tried to cancel it after season two. And you'll read about that in book two. But um, uh, they, they didn't want it. And so they moved it to Friday nights. And it lost a lot of its audience, as you would expect, because uh, Friday nights, uh, kids are out, you know, high school football games, dances, movies, dates, whatever. And so uh, it, it dropped in the ratings quite a bit. But on uh, Thursday nights, it was quite often winning its time slot against ABC's top-rated show, Bewitched. It almost always beat CBS with My Three Sons. And as I said, it was uh, NBC's top-rated Thursday night show. Well, they lost a lot of that when they went to Friday. Uh, the network was determined to make what they were saying true, but Star Trek wasn't doing well. But the fact is, it was still doing well because it was their top-rated Friday night show. Now, a network doesn't cancel their top-rated show for any night of the week. You cancel the other shows that aren't doing as good. But they kept trying to get rid of Star Trek. So wherever they moved it, it, it was their strongest show. It was the anchor for that night. But they would never admit that and never tell anybody at Star Trek that that was the case. And the, the ratings reports would be stamped on loan from A.C. Nelson to be returned to A.C. Nelson. Do not photocopy. So the networks got to decide when they wanted to release information. If it was to their advantage, if it was a network-owned show and it was number one in the ratings, they would make sure everybody knew it. But if it was a show they didn't own and they didn't want, they would make sure nobody knew it. There's an old saying in Hollywood, a network can't guarantee a hit, but they sure can guarantee a failure. Hmm. And that's what they were trying to do. So the, the bad thing that was happening was they ordered 16 episodes at the start of the second season. And the Star Trek company was in the middle of producing the 16th episode before they even knew if there would be a 17th episode. Now, in TV, you need to know way ahead because you have to have scripts written. And you have to know if people are working next week. <laughs> so imagine you're in the middle of producing an episode, and uh, which was uh, Gamesters of... Uh, no, I'm sorry. It was um, uh, Private Little War. Private Little War was the 16th episode of the second season. And they didn't know if they were going to be coming back next week. And, uh, and, you know, in the middle of that week, uh, they, they get a pickup for two episodes. NBC says, okay, uh, the ratings for the first couple episodes weren't great. You were up against The Great Escape on CBS, the Steve McQueen movie with James Garner and everything. I have it TV premiere. And Gomer Pyle, uh, one of the top-rated shows on Friday nights. And um, they said, so your ratings weren't great, but you did better than ABC, so... We're not going to cancel you, but we're only going to pick up two episodes. Well, whoop-de-doo. 
<laughs> okay, so they have to rush in and, and, and have two scripts ready. Well, they had already had two scripts written, hoping that they might get a pickup. So they had a couple scripts pretty much written, but they had to quickly rewrite them. They had to cast them. They had to jump into production for those two. And they were in the middle of the second one before they knew if there would be even any more episodes after that. And then the network came back and said, okay, we'll take... Uh, It'll take eight more episodes to finish out the season. Or actually, ten. They wanted ten, but then they cut it back to eight, so it ended up being a 26-episode season. So, you know, imagine working like that. Imagine writing scripts if, that you don't even know you're going to film them. Imagine Shatner and Nimoy and the others being at work and not able to take any jobs for next week or next month because they're under contract, but they don't even know if they're going to be coming back next week. It's it's a it's a terrible way to be trying to make a TV show, and the budget is a terrible way to be trying to make a TV show as well. It's kind of crazy that season two ended up being as good as it was, considering everything that was going on behind the scenes. Yeah, I love season two. You know, uh, season one is uh, I think considered the best season, but but I I love season two, and and I, I keep talking to more and more people who say the same thing. And I, I think it's because by the time they got to season two, even though you have some just amazingly great classic episodes from the first season, like City on the Edge of Forever and The Naked Time and The Side of Paradise and, and so forth, and Space Seed, but, but by the time they got to the second season, they really were, they had found their stride. Uh, the, the characters were really locked in. And uh, the pacing of the show was faster. Uh, so it was even more action-adventure is what, what it was always billed as by NBC and what was promised to them. And, uh, and Gene Kuhn was so good at writing humor, natural humor, not silly, goofy humor, but just, just little quips between the characters that would put some warmth and put some humor into the show. And he was so good at that when he'd rewrite all these scripts. And, and he would take, took over for Roddenberry. So where Roddenberry was rewriting all the scripts in season one, or for the first half of season one anyway, then Gene Kuhn is rewriting all the scripts with uh, Dorothy Fontana helping out uh, for season two. And it's remarkable. You'll look at an episode um, like the, the Changeling. Let's use that as an example. This is written by John Meredith Lucas. Well, if you read his la the last version of the script he wrote, and then you read the script that aired, you see that about 60, maybe even 70% of the dialogue was written by Gene Kuhn and Dorothy Fontana. And that was the case with almost every episode of Star Trek. The same couple people are rewriting these episodes. That's why they'd have to leave at the end of the year. <laughs> the producers would always leave, and the story consultant uh, would leave at the end of the season. Somebody new would come in because they'd be exhausted. If you can imagine rewriting 26 episodes, uh, 29 in the first year, 26 in the second, and uh, and a couple of those they had to write from scratch because there were a couple that Dorothy Fontana brought in and a couple that Gene Kuhn brought in, but uh, but all the others they're rewriting them because the freelancers can't quite get the dialogue right for these characters, and these are professional writers. These are the best writers around, coming in with good ideas and and doing a nice job, but they're having trouble getting the voices right. Because Star Trek was so unique, and these characters were so unique. 
They were unlike uh, anything else. I mean, if you look at another show at that time, like Mannix, which was being produced at Desilu at the same time. Well, Joe Mannix, if you remember Mannix, uh, you know, his character was, he was Mike Connors, but, but he didn't, there wasn't really a personality. A lot of characters in TV shows didn't have unique personalities, unless you're talking Maxwell Smart on Get Smart or something, you know. But um, uh, on Star Trek, there was nobody like Kirk, and there was certainly nobody like Spock. And, and to be able to understand that character and write for that character and make it sound like something that character would say, it just always came down to it that it was, it was the same people rewriting every script to get those characters right. And they never, we never took credit for it, but they did all that work. So you, you said at, at one point um, that uh, well, Gene Kuhn, he left, what, like halfway through season two? Is that right? Yeah, and nobody knows why. I know why, and you're going to know why when you read book two. But here we are 45 years later, and nobody's ever explained. Have you ever heard any explanation as to why Gene Kuhn left Star Trek? No. Have you heard any rumors? I, 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 so a friend of mine was telling me something the other day, and I was like, that doesn't sound right, but I, I, don't, I don't remember even what it was. Oh, well, I heard that he had a falling out with Roddenberry is what I heard. That's what I was going to assume. Yeah, but you never knew what it was or if that was even true. Yeah. Now you're going to know. Now you're going to know exactly what went down. Intriguing. I can't tell you because then you won't buy the book. But uh, well, actually, maybe I should tell you because you, you know it, it, it's uh, reading about it is way different than hearing somebody talk about it for two minutes. You know, you get to read about it and you get to feel it and you get to be in that person's shoes and feel what they were going through. So I'll just tell you a little of it. I, I won't yeah, tell just, you the just, whole thing. Just a, everything's... a brief teaser. Just give us a taste. Yeah, just a little taste. Well, I, I, I kind of gave you a hint before. Uh, Gene Kuhn was real good at writing comedy. Mm. He, he had created, uh, without credit, Mikhail's Navy and uh, uh, the Munsters. Uh, you know, so comedy was in his blood. And and in the second season, it's not just putting in the little bit of humor between the characters in each episode. Uh, even in a, in a very serious episode like Amok Time. But then you had episodes like I Mud and The Trouble with Tribbles, <laughs> which were just out-and-out comedies. And Gene Roddenberry did not want that for Star Trek uh, because if you go back in time, which these books do, I don't just talk about Star Trek. I talk about what was happening on the other channels and what was happening in America and why they wanted to do this particular script because they were making commentary on something that was in the news that week. So you get to find out about this stuff. And you, and you can appreciate what the budgets are because I'll tell you what it costs to buy a new color TV or a Ford Mustang or a loaf of bread. So you understand in, in reference to that what the budget represents. Well, you know, Lost in Space was on at this time. And Lost in Space was silly by that point. It got sillier each season. And Roddenberry just said, we are not going to go down that road. We have to be different than that show. We have to be better. And this is serious science fiction. And I don't mind little quips now and then and little jokes between the characters now and then, but I don't want to be doing comedies. And uh, Gene Roddenberry had gone, uh, left the show for a, a month because he had to write a, a movie script. And he came back the day they were filming The Trouble with Tribbles. The very day that the Tribbles were falling on Kirk's head. 
and he walked onto the sound stage and he heard laughter ringing from the rafters. Everybody was laughing. And, and there was always a lot of laughter on the stage because William Shatner was very funny and would keep everybody in stitches. But this was, everyone was laughing. It was like hearing a whole audience laughing. The, 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 the grips, the lighting guys up in the rafters are laughing. Everyone's laughing. And he walks over there and he sees them shooting this scene where Kirk opens up the storage compartment and, and thousands of tribbles fall on top of them. And everybody's in hysterics. And Roddenberry's standing in the sidelines watching this and not laughing. And not happy. And he leaves without talking to anybody. And he goes to the screening room and he says, he says uh, somebody turned to him and said, hey, this, this, this one's even funnier than last week's episode. So he goes over to the editing room, to the screening room, and he says, show me some footage from last week's episode. And it was iMud. Oh. And, and he had left when iMud was in development and Tribbles was in development. And it was going to be, iMud was supposed to be like Mud's Women meaning it was going to have some humor, but it was mostly played seriously. And he sees them, just all, all the dancing and the silliness. And uh, uh, Harker, Fenton, Mud, you load, you know, all that stuff from <laughs> Stella. And, and he's watching this, and he's not laughing. And he says, let me see the script for next week. And it's Bread and Circuses. And it's a comedy. And a lot of the comedies survive. There's some funny stuff in Brennan's Circuses, but, uh, but Gene Roddenberry wrote most of it out. He started rewriting that script right there and then. And, wow. and he went into Gene Kuhn's office, and they had a showdown. And he says, this is, this is my show. I entrusted my show to you. You're not going to do this to my show. And Gene Kuhn basically said, I'm producer. You made me producer. If I'm going to produce, you've got to let me produce. And, uh, and I'm not going to tell you anymore. <laughs> okay. well, you may think, well, that, that's got to be the whole story. No, it's not. Uh, because, as you know, Gene Kuhn didn't leave right away. He was under contract. He had to finish out a certain amount of episodes, the first 16, and they still had three or four to go. And, uh, and even then, he had to stay on to train in who's going to take over for him. He had to pick who was going to take over for him. And even then, he wrote more scripts for the show. And he wrote for the show in the third season under a pseudonym. Hmm. Uh, and there's a whole interesting story about that, too, but that's book three. And you'll find <laughs> out about the whole conspiracy that was going on to keep Gene Kuhn writing for the show. And even NBC was part of the conspiracy. He wasn't putting Lee Cronin on his scripts because he was embarrassed. He was putting it on for an entirely different reason, which you'll find out about when we talk about book three. But... Uh, but it was much more complicated than just two guys having a disagreement over the humor. Uh, so you'll find all that out when you read about it. And you, and you find out, finally, who Gene Kuhn is through all of his memos. You're experiencing that with book one, right? Because, mm -hmm. yeah. you know, he died in 1974 of lung cancer quite suddenly. He didn't even know he was sick, and he went into the hospital with uh, some complaints, and within a week he was dead. Within, mm -hmm. I think, three days he was dead. But I interviewed his secretary, Andy Richardson, uh, found her. She's living down in Australia. I interviewed her, and, and I had all these memos that Gene Kuhn wrote. He was notorious for writing 20-page memos on a 10-page treatment. <laughs> there's, there's one writer in the second season, I won't tell you who, but uh, he, turned in his, he turned in his script, and we turned in his outline, and Gene, which was 12 pages, and he got a 20-page memo from Gene Cohn. And then he turns in his revised outline, and he gets another 20-page memo from Gene Cohn. And then he turns in his script, and he gets a 30-page memo from Gene Cohn. And he, he sends Gene Cohn a, a letter, and it's in the book. 
and he says, he says, uh, no more blankety 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 memos. If you have some changes you want, pick up the phone and call me. I refuse to read any more of your memos. Of course, this writer never worked for them again. But uh, and Jim Kuhn had to rewrite the script because uh, he walked. But uh, that's the kind of, you, you find out Gene Kuhn's personality from his memos, and uh, a lovely man, a passionate man, a good man. But he but he he could get a little annoyed if a writer wasn't turning in good material and you see that in some of his memos as well so you get to find out who he is through his 20 page memos i don't print 20 pages but i, I print pieces of the memo so you get to find out who he is finally i mean you know, we were just talking about the trouble with tribbles uh, a couple of weeks ago and you know one of the things that, that we were talking about was even though it is a comedy there's a lot more going on in, in it it's 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 kind of like a, a billy wilder uh movie as opposed to lost in space and that's seems like a, a lot that you know uh, uh, to me anyway i think that that is definitely a positive element that coon brought to the show i know things were different back then but putting it in sort of modern terms would you say that Gene Kuhn was like the quote-unquote showrunner of season two and not Gene Roddenberry? Or was oh, Roddenberry... Yeah. yeah? Okay. No, it was Kuhn, uh, starting uh, at, with the uh, halfway point of season one. Mm -hmm. uh, Gene Roddenberry produced the first 16 episodes of season one. And then when they got picked up to do another 13, uh, he brought in Kuhn because... Roddenberry was burned out. He was exhausted. He rewrote every script. I mean, I mean, uh, the Corbinite maneuver uh, says written by Jerry Soul, but uh, on that one, it was about eighty percent of the dialogue was Gene Roddenberry's. And the same with all those early scripts, with the exception of Charlie X and The Naked Time, because Charlie X was written by Dorothy Fontana, who she would turn in a script and you'd say, "Hey, this sounds like Star Trek. Spock sounds like Spock. This is tremendous," which is why they promoted her and made her the script consultant. And John D.F. Black certainly knew the show, and, and so and when you read the first draft of Naked Time, it sounds like the right characters. George Clayton Johnson did a very good job, too, in The Man Trap. He really caught the voices of the characters, but nobody else did. So Roddenberry had to rewrite all those scripts, and then Kuhn came in and had to start doing it because Gene was burned out. at that. Well, Gene Roddenberry was burned out at that point, so he found another Gene to come in and take over for him. And Kuhn rewrote everything... Here, here's, here's one of the things you'll find out in book two as well, that, that even the ones that Kuhn's name isn't on, the, the episodes, say, produced by John Meredith Lucas, those were scripts that had been bought before Lucas was brought in and had already been developed and rewritten by Gene Kuhn. So, and Kuhn was still in the office, <laughs> you know, so working, uh, and put his name on a piece of the action after he was gone. Uh, he was still there. So, uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, it, that's the way TV works. It's like, well, who, whoever is got the title of producer this week gets their name on that episode, even if they, they're just moving their stuff into the office. Yeah. And the episode's already filming, and all the work's been done on it, but it'll say produced by John Meredith Lucas because he's, as of this date, the official producer. Now, in TV, they'll put everybody's name up there. That's why you'll see 20 producers listed on a TV show. But back in the 60s, it was going to be an executive producer and a producer and an associate producer. And that was it. So anyone else was working without credit. So Gene was there. I mean, season two was his season. His, his stamp 
is on every episode right up to the last couple. Uh, the, the ones he didn't touch were The Ultimate Computer, uh, The Omega Glory, and Simon Earth, uh, uh, the last three produced. And he didn't have a lot to do with Patterns of Force, which was one of the last ones produced, but he bought the story and he certainly gave memos on the outline and, and so forth. So he, you're, you're going to see that he's very involved throughout that season. But I, but I will, and good for you for mentioning uh, Billy Wilder, great comparison. Because his movies like The Apartment and, and things, they're, they're funny on one hand and they're serious on another hand, and they have a great message about human, the human condition. And that's Star Trek. And uh, you're looking at a season two episode like Friday's Child. Michael Dante said this to me. He played uh, Mog, was that his name, in, in uh, Friday's Child, the uh, guy that was chasing them up the mountain. And he said he couldn't believe how good the script was because in, in 60 pages, which translates to 50 minutes, he said there's comedy, a great comedy, between, between the baby and uh, Julie Newmar and McCoy and the whole bit. There was great drama. There was great action adventure. There was great science fiction. There was great characters, the originals, but also the guest star parts were so good, and, and Julie Newmar's character had such an arc, and there was such a great message and such a theme to that story about sacrifice, making sacrifice for others, and and so forth, and, and it's typical of every episode of Star Trek. And he said, I couldn't believe they got all that into one hour, and it all works. The comedy works, the drama works, the theme works, the characters work, the character arc works. It all works. And they, they squeezed it all into a 60-page script, and that is really not easy to do. And they did that. Roddenberry did it, and Coon did it. Mark, you mentioned uh, Assignment Earth which is uh, one of the most intriguing episodes for me in that it's like a, a backdoor pilot. Um, can, you, can you tease something about, about Roddenberry's thought process on using his existing show to try to make another show in case this one fell apart? Yeah, it, it was a very new idea back then. And again, as you found with book one, the, um, uh, these are time machine books, so I take you back and I kind of remind everybody what was going on in that period of time so you can appreciate how Star Trek fit in or didn't fit in. And one of the things I, I talk about in book two is I give you the history of the backdoor pilots. And there had only been about a half dozen up to that point uh, that had been done. Uh, so it was still a brand new thing. Now it's done all the time. Uh, show as a spin-off from another one. But back then you had Gomer Pyle, which was a spin-off of the Yandy Griffith show, and uh, uh, The Prisoner was a spin-off of Secret Agent, and uh, uh, Green Acres was a spin-off of Petticoat Junction or something like that. You know, So there were, there were there was, you know, about four or five of them. Uh, so he wanted to get another series on the air, and um, NBC wasn't, was interested, but they weren't willing to put up the money to make a pilot. So he said, well, what if I rewrite this and work in the Star Trek characters and we'll do it as our last episode of season two? And so you can get a pilot for free, in a sense. And they agreed. And they, they agreed to give him a little more money since they were getting two things in one. And then they reneged. Say, boo, NBC, again. They really treated Star Trek horribly. But... Gene wasn't very nice to them either. So, you know, if, look, we, we experience that in our lives. If somebody's not nice to you, 
you don't want to work with them. And and that's kind of what happened. He he bucked the authority of NBC constantly and and talked about them to the press and everything else. And so they just wanted to get rid of him, which means they had to get rid of Star Trek. But uh, they reneged on giving him the extra money. After he'd re written the script and they were ready to go into production, suddenly he has to rewrite the script to take out a lot of the stuff that was going to cost money uh, because he doesn't have it anymore. But NASA cooperated with him beautifully. And uh, they were able to film uh, a rocket being launched and, uh, and all this kind of stuff because uh, everybody in the scientific community, everybody in NASA watched Star Trek religiously and, and loved it. There's a picture in book two of all these technicians at NASA uh, working with uh, one of the flights that's up there and um, uh, orbiting the Earth. And they're all wearing Spock ears. <laughs> <laughs> so they, they all loved Star Trek because there was nothing else on that they could watch that, that seemed to honor what they were doing. So they, he got amazing cooperation. And there's a fantastic thing they tried to do in Assignment Earth that they weren't able to. Uh, they, they were going to have after the Enterprise goes back in time, on purpose this time, uh, to observe 1968 Earth and how Earth survived not having a nuclear war that year. And uh, uh, when they get into orbit of Earth, they pick up a television transmission, and they put it on the view screen, and it's an episode of Bonanza. <laughs> and they see the NBC logo. The following program is brought to you in living color by NBC. And then a Bonanza episode starts, and everybody on the bridge is watching this. And that's in the script. But at the last minute, they couldn't get permission to do it. Bonanza wanted them to do it. NBC wanted them to do it because it's promoting another NBC show. But the, the unions killed the deal because the Writers Guild said, well, you're going to have to pay the person who wrote that Bonanza episode, and you're going to have to pay Lauren Green and Dan Blocker and Michael Landon, and you're going to have to pay whoever directed it. You're going to have to. So it's like, oh, to show this 30-second clip, we're going to have to pay all these people. And they didn't have it in the budget after NBC cut the budget for that, so they had to take that scene out. And it's heartbreaking. You know, when you read these books, uh, you find out there's a lot of joy in, in seeing them bring these episodes to life and, and improving a lot of things as they do it. And there's a lot of heartache, as we discussed last time when I talked to you guys, about how sometimes they had to take things out because they couldn't afford to do it or because the censors said, you cannot do that. Uh, you want to know what they took out of Who Mourns for Adonis? Did you ever hear about that? No. No. It's uh, Geek Magazine's running an excerpt on this uh, during the month of December, so uh, you, you know that's out already. You can, if anybody hasn't gotten it, you can get it. And there's a, an excerpt from the book on the chapter on uh, Who Mourns for Adonis. And uh, at the end of the episode, it's in the script. You know that uh, um, Lieutenant uh, Palmas, I think her name is uh, uh, Leslie Parrish's character. She uh, she's pregnant. She's, uh, McCoy comes to the bridge to tell Spock and Kirk that uh, he just examined her to find out why she's been feeling ill since they left the planet. And it turns out that she's pregnant. And they look at him stunned. And Kirk says, Apollo? And he says, yeah. You know, because, you know, she and Apollo went off into the woods and Apollo raped her with the wind and all that kind of stuff. In the script, it's called The Rape of the Wind when she gets hit with those big wind machines. <clears throat> and... Um, so uh, uh, McCoy says, so, but let me ask you something. This baby, when it comes, is it going to be human or God? 
for a god, you know. And what a chilling way to end the episode. We would have been talking about it to this day, but we are talking about it. Uh, and, it and it didn't make it into the episode. The censors came back and said, wait, you can't do this. They were very nervous about it. There were a lot of memos from NBC as the script was being developed saying, we're a little nervous about this. And, uh, but they let it go and, until they were filming it. And then they just came down and said, we can't do this. We're not going to let you put this in the episode. We're going to get too many letters. There's going to be upset viewers. We, we just can't do this. So yeah, a lot of lot of interesting stuff. And anything else in in the book that you want to tease? Uh, oh, there's so many. Uh, okay, I'll give you one more. Okay. Uh, I'll give you one more because I'll tell you something. I'm not just saying this to sell books, although I don't mind selling books. But, you know, but I'm not here to sell books. I'm here because I love talking about Star Trek with you guys. But um, uh, the story of Star Trek gets better with each book. You may say, well, the third season isn't as good as the second season, but it's a better book because the conflicts get bigger. The, the challenge gets bigger. The, the relationship between Star Trek and, and NBC gets worse. The time slots get worse. The, it, it's just uh, it's like watching a movie and how the, it gets uh, the more and more uh, dramatic as it builds. Well, movies are designed in three-act structures, and we've got three books, and it's like a three-act structure. So I, I like book two better than book one, and I like book three best of all because of, because of that. And one of the things that happens in book two, to give you an example of these type of things, they almost lost Leonard Nimoy. And I never knew this until I did this research and started going through the show files and reading all the letters and everything, and I'd never heard this anywhere on any website, in any other book, even in Nimoy's books, nobody's ever talked about it. But at the end of the first season, or just weeks before they were supposed to start filming the second season, Nimoy's agent called and said he's not coming back unless you give us like three times as much money as he was being getting paid. Well, actually, way more than that. They were asking, uh, I think, seven, eight times as much. He was getting paid, oh, 1250 bucks per episode. That's all. Wow. Now, multiply that by 10 to figure out what that would be today, but still, that's not very much money for Spock and what mm -hmm. he had become and the amount of fan mail he was getting. But he was he was hired as a supporting character to William Shatner, who was the star, and, the, and Kirk, who was the protagonist. And suddenly, he's getting more fan mail than, than Kirk's getting, and all the articles are being written about him, and he's getting all this attention, and his part's getting bigger and bigger in each episode. And as an actor, he liked that very much, of course. Uh, Nimoy really gave a lot to that show. He invented the uh, the Vulcan neck pinch. He invented uh, spreading your fingers apart and saying, you know, for that uh, live long and prosper hand gesture. And uh, he, he came up with these were his ideas. He came up with so much for that that character. So he wasn't being difficult. He didn't want to leave, but his agent said, "You're not being treated fairly. You are a star of this show now, and they're paying you." what, what uh, they should be paying a, a, a minor character. And I refuse to let you go back under these conditions. And so they asked NBC for more money, or, or Desilu for more money, way more. And Desilu said, we can't pay that. Everybody will want to raise. We can't do that. No. We've got a contract. You've got to come back. And, uh, and they said, no, he's not coming back. So Roddenberry got involved, and Roddenberry was starting to have conflicts with Nimoy at this point because Roddenberry claimed ownership of the character and Nimoy was changing the character, revolving the character. 
so they were not getting along too well. And Roddenberry said, uh, then we're going to replace them. We're not going to hire somebody to play Spock. The fans wouldn't like that, but we're going to explain Spock's gone, and there's going to, Kirk's going to request a new Vulcan to be with him on the Enterprise. And they auditioned a bunch of people, including David Carradine, who went on to play Kung Fu. That's crazy. Yeah, that, he, that he was in the top three. He said that, yeah. That's crazy. He was in the top three of all the people. After they auditioned a bunch of people, they had like a, a short list, and it was uh, Mark Leonard, David Carradine, and somebody else. And they decided, well, Mark Leonard's too old, and, and we want him to play Spock's father anyway, or, or whatever. They already had a script in development. And uh, so it was between David Carradine and one other person, and you'll find out who the other person was when you get the book. But So they hired him and gave him a contract. And gave him a guarantee that if things were worked out with Nimoy, which they didn't expect to happen, that they would at least give him a guest starring role in one episode, which they did. And uh, uh, and so he was going to be the new Vulcan on the Enterprise. And it was literally in the last few days before they started filming that uh, a deal was worked out. So you can get all the details on that in book two, and you can find out who the other person was and how he felt about being hired and then dropped. Hmm. And the part that they ended up giving him, and, and so forth. But yeah, they were. Uh, there was a great memo in there from Gene Roddenberry to Gene Kuhn, uh, written on April first, I believe, April Fool's Day. Uh, and Gene Kuhn was coming back from a two-week vacation and came back into the office, and he found a memo waiting for him from Roddenberry. And it starts off, "Dear Gene, this is no April Fool's joke. It looks like we're <laughs> going to have to go forward with season two without Mr. Spock, and here's why." And here's what we're doing, and blah blah blah, and so you see all that stuff in there uh, in book two. So they kind of kept that uh, hidden. Yeah, that's insane. I, I can't wait to to read about all these stories. You know, there's a guy who I work with, and he's been dragging around volume one for the past few weeks, and he's you know like really into it. And he's like, you know, I think, uh, you know, I, I'm really looking forward to, to book two, but I, I don't think I'm going to get book three because you know. And I'm like, are you kidding me? Book three is going to be the best, you know. <laughs> so yeah. Yeah, yeah. Season three, I've had to reevaluate it. You know, there are some very good episodes of season three, and even the ones that aren't that you wouldn't call good have good ideas behind them. Uh, it's just the budgets were was, was terrible at that point. Poor Bob Justman said we were trying to put out half a science fiction movie each week with the budget of a radio show. Yeah. I mean, that the studio and NBC were just literally strangling Star Trek to death. And and you're going to be surprised to find out how deeply involved Gene Roddenberry was with the third season. All the, he always said he wasn't involved, and everybody believed it. You're going to see all these memos. Guess who gave out almost all the story assignments for the third season? Gene Roddenberry. Oh, and you're going to see all the memos from Gene Roddenberry. And you're going to find out who Fred Freiberger really was. And uh, and is he really a villain? Is he really the guy that, that destroyed Star Trek? Or, or is he the guy that somehow managed to keep it going under the worst possible conditions. Uh, so, you know, it, there's a lot of interesting stuff in uh, in book three. And, and even the episodes that don't work, you'll be able to find out, again, like when we talked about Alternative Factor and Court Marshall last time we chatted, you'll find out uh, what, uh, what some of these episodes were supposed to be and could have been if they had had the money to do them, you know, but they didn't at that point. 
Bob Justman said, you know, but he said, if we go into a fourth season, the way it's going, he said, it's going to be um, a 49-minute briefing room scene between Kirk and Spock where they explain everything that happened to us because that's all we're going to be able to afford to do. I, I would and totally so watch that, know, by the way. <laughs> so would I. I would too. You know, I I, I can watch uh, the, the Way to Eden and enjoy it. <laughs> and Friedberger admits that he went a little far with them singing. He said, "Okay, I I kind of I kind of shouldn't have done that," but <laughs> but it still was an interesting story about a guy getting a disease because of the artificial environments and the uh, sanitized environments that were created, and and it turns into a disease, and he's angry and he wants to get away, and you know, it's it's still. A good story at its core, but uh, sometimes the execution wasn't there. I think it's more interesting to read about the episodes that don't work yeah. than the ones that do. Yeah. Find out what they what they were trying to do. Wait till you hear about Spock's brain. <laughs> we'll save that. <laughs> we'll save that. Wait till you hear what they were trying to do, and you may even be impressed. And then kind yeah. of sad that they didn't succeed. <laughs> Can't wait. Well, where can where can people find uh, the books at this point? Book two is coming out probably about a week from Amazon, now. Amazon, uh, yeah, Amazon.com, of course, and uh, and Kindle on Amazon.com, and uh, uh, it's in paperback now overseas in England and Germany and France and Italy and Spain and and uh, going into other markets even as we speak, and. Um, uh, you can also get it at Roddenberry.com, which we're very happy about because uh, that was Gene's company that he started back in the 60s as Lincoln Enterprises, and they've embraced this book and, and are selling uh, autographed copies on, on Roddenberry.com. And you can get it at the publisher's website, uh, JacobsBrownMediaGroup.com, and you get those not only autographed by me, uh, worst signature you've ever seen in your life, it's kind of an X, <laughs> but I get I get um, the people who write the forwards to sign them too. So John D. F. Black, uh, uh, and uh, who, by the way, he's the guy who came up with the line "Space: The Final Frontier." He wrote that. He and Gene wrote the opening narration together. They back and forth. They'd send each other memos, and each one would come up with a line. And Gene was procrastinating, and John D. F. Black finally said, "Okay, I'm going to have to start." And so he wrote space, not, not the final frontier. That comes from Mr. Black, who's still with us, and uh, and he's autographs uh, these books that are sold through the publisher. And Walter Koenig writes the foreword for book two, because uh, Mr. Chekhov joins the show at that point. And David Gerald has written the foreword for book three. And you may say, why why not season two, where the trouble with tribbles? But you know, you would expect that. And besides, you got to have Walter. But you know. David was very involved with season three, doing stories that didn't get produced, and one that did, and and had a lot to say about it. And so, uh, it's a very interesting uh, forward that he writes for book three. Cool. And that, wait. by the way, will be out in the summer. So you'll have to wait till summer for that. Excellent. And and where can people find you on the internet? Uh, MarkCushman.com. M-A-R-C-C-U-S-H-M-A-N.com. You can send me an email. Somehow, I, I never go there, but if you go there, I'm sure you'll find something that'll say, write to Mark here. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> well, I'm going to go visit my own website, but I, I know my life. <laughs> well, thank you very much for joining us again. Uh, can't wait to read book two. Book one was excellent. 
And uh, yeah, we look forward to, to talking to you again soon. Well, that was fun talking to Mark Cushman again, wasn't it? Yeah. He's got a, a lot of uh, Star Trek knowledge in those books. They're well worth checking out. Yes. And speaking of which, uh, some things have changed since we recorded with him. You can now go to www.thesearethevoyagesbooks.com in order to uh, check out the books. There you can find links to buy the revisited version of the first one, pre-order the second one, and speaking of the second one, it now comes out in March. So you have a lot more time to catch up on the first one in order to uh, be where you need to be on the second one. Well, it was fun talking to uh, Mark Cushman about the second season of Star Trek today, but that's just one of the Trek topics we've been talking about on Trek FM this week. Here's a quick look at what you may have missed elsewhere on the network. Previously on Trek.FM, Standard Orbit. Pitching a piece of the action movie. I think we can definitely might, say that the they might go that the that, Transformers though. planet doesn't work. They might go for that. Would you go for that, Drew? I mean, personally, I would shy away from it because then you'd be... Or would you be, shy uh, away it would from be, it? You're a bad person. <laughs> <laughs> Earl Grey. William T. Riker. Imagine now if he'd come back with a goatee or mutton chops. We could have been a very different Riker. Hipster Riker. Number one, are you wearing glasses? <laughs> no, it's Jordy's visor. I just... <laughs> I'm reading a pad that you've never heard of before. The Ready Room. Inside a lot Time with Mark Cushman. But something else that you'll find out in book two is that they almost didn't have Leonard Nimoy and Mr. Spock for season two of Star Trek. Uh, his agent wanted more money for Leonard and for good reason because when he signed on to do the series he was supposed to be uh, a supporting actor and yet he was getting more fan mail than even William Shatner who was the star of the show yet uh, only a fraction of the money The Orb Move along home as a TOS episode Cisco comparing First Contact to dating girls felt like something that Kirk would do as well, you know, t teaching Charlie Evans about girls and yeah. Charlie X, something like that. To the journey! Voyager on Blu-ray. I know that there's been some outtakes done because you can find clips of them on YouTube, mm -hmm. but there's got to be more, and I want to see them all. Warp 5. Andorians on Enterprise. And so they took this idea where they had mm -hmm. antenna and they took this idea where they were blue and from someplace cold, or I don't even know if they were someplace cold when they were on the, the TOS, and they, they, they just made everything better. Commentary, Trek stars. Iris Steven Bear recap. I think when you look at the, the work that was done on, on Deep Space Nine, what becomes apparent is a group of people who do not feel like they need to do what the original series did in order to accomplish what the original series accomplished. Melodic Treks. Apparently, at one point, Patrick Stewart felt he might be able to actually play on screen himself, although he was delicately pointed out to him by Bryce Martin that he wasn't up to that standard quite yet. Literary Treks. Peaceable Kingdoms with Peyton Ward. I don't really remember why I was the one chosen to back cleanup, other than the fact that I think Margaret, our editor, wanted Picard and the Enterprise E to factor into the final, uh, the final installment, and she had already tapped me to write that story. Matter stream. 
Star Trek Axelar with Alec Peters and Richard Hatch. If you've ever experienced war or any kind of um, conflict where everything is life and death, there's a certain kind of um, resolve, truth, experience that you come to that um, I don't think too many people can understand or ever really, really um, empathize with. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. So check out these shows and get in on the Daily Trek Talk. You'll find them on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, Windows Phone, Xbox, Zune, or you can stream and download files from the website. Just visit trek.fm slash pd for podcast directory to get all the links. We have some feedback in reply to feedback that we had already received. Uh, Renee wrote us a couple weeks ago, and she uh, gave us a short history of how the Romulans left Vulcan without the Vulcans knowing that the Romulans were now Vulcans or something. So uh, anyway, she, she closed it off with Jalon True, which I assumed was Vulcan for Live Long and Prosper. Uh, Philip Gilfus from Earl Grey here on the network says that uh, Jalon True is Romulan and not Vulcan. He didn't say what it, what it meant, but... I'm assuming he knows more about uh, the Romulan language than us because nobody speaks Romulan in the original series. Or Klingon. Yeah, it's um, kind of scary that we have listeners who know when uh, random made-up phrases are in one fake language or a different fake language. Uh, we need to be really careful with our, our fact-checking. Yes, we need to we need to clear everything through uh through some kind of translator. Yeah. Uh make sure that uh we're not going to offend someone by saying the wrong thing. Mhm. So uh if you want to contact us like uh Renee or Philip did, uh you can uh share your thoughts by going to trek.fm/contact. There's a form there, choose to send a show and choose standard orbit. That'll come to both of us by email. You can also use the tab on the right-hand side of any page to send us a voicemail using a webcam's microphone. And you can talk to us and other listeners on our forums at trek.fm slash forums. In social media, you'll find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash trek.fm and on Twitter under username trek.fm. Mike, where can people find you if they want to contact you directly and correct your grammar? Well, you can find me on Twitter at ComTrackStars, or you can email me at ComTrackStars at gmail.com. And you can find me at 005 on Twitter, D-O-U-B-L-E-O-F-I-V-E, and, and that that's really about it. That's the best way to contact me. We have a new iTunes review. We have a few new iTunes reviews. We'll read one of them right now. Uh, the subject is, I find them most uncommon, Mr. Spock. And this one is by Aslan16. This is a very exceptional podcast. First, I love that it's a topical review rather than an episode review show. This sets it apart from other TOS podcasts, which are great too. And it allows it to go in-depth on fascinating subjects. The hosts are very professional and work well together. Having grown up with TOS, I love the chance to reconnect with my favorite episodes and characters in a new and fresh way. Keep up the excellent work, guys. Live long and prosper. Oh, yeah. Which is English for Vulcan. For <laughs> there. <laughs> yeah, thanks for the review, Aslan. Uh, we really appreciate it. 
Well, before we go, we'd like to ask you to please support our sponsor, who makes it possible for us to bring Standard Orbit and our other shows to you every week. The sponsor for this show is Audible.com. Audible's a great way for you to read all the books you've always wanted to read, but never thought you'd have time for. Audible's the premier source for audiobooks with more than 150,000 titles to choose from and new titles coming every week. From classics to current bestsellers, Audible has something for everyone. There are numerous classic TOS books on Audible, as well as some of the all-time favorites like Prime Directive and Federation. Mike, did you find a book for us today? Yeah, well, you know, I mean, um, Mark Cushman's books are all about the making of the original series, but if you want to go a little bit beyond the original series, you could check out William Shatner's Star Trek Movie Memories, uh, which is a, a really great book about uh, the making of the original series movies told from William Shatner's perspective, which is a very unique perspective um, and an interesting perspective. And it's it's kind of eye-opening in a lot of ways. I don't know how much of it is necessarily true or not. You know, everyone has their own uh, take on what happened, but um, very entertaining nonetheless. And the uh, book on Audible is narrated by William Shatner as well as written by him. Um, and you can get it for free on Audible right now since you're a listener to Trek FM. That's right. You can get a free audiobook of your choice along with a 30-day trial to see how great Audible is. You can give it a try today and catch up on all those classic books you've yet to read or the latest novel from your favorite author as well. Just go to audibletrial.com slash trekfm and sign up today. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash trekfm, and we thank you and Audible for supporting Standard Orbit and Trek FM. Also, if you would personally like to support Standard Orbit, the network, and our programming, visit trek.fm slash donate. We have eight alien-themed badges and art prints as a thank you for your contribution, and you can mix and match badges and art prints. There are different levels of donation to choose from, and your contributions help us cover the cost of production, storage, and bandwidth needed to bring Standard Orbit and our other shows to you every week. Well, that's it for this week, Mike. Yep. How many episodes down is that now? Oh, goodness, like 16? 16 down. Like four months? Wow, we're like, yeah, we're just rolling right along. Yep, having a good time. Mm -hmm. Well, everybody, thanks for catching up and sticking with us. Have a good week and keep on trekking. It is the will of Landrew. Mr. Chekhov, take us out of orbit ahead, walk factor one. Thanks, sir.